Good morning. Isn't it exciting? What do you think? Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's great to, uh, to see someone masterfully manage the whole business of speaking with an interpreter. We didn't see it this morning, but it is great to see. No, no, no. <laughs> no, no, no. That's unfair. That's unfair. On uh, a few occasions in my life, I've had that privilege. Uh, three times in Romania and a couple of times in France. And it, uh, each had their different challenges, shall we say. But as far as I'm aware, the only interpretation that will have to be made uh, as I speak to you is that you in your brain have to try to interpret what my words mean, which may seem a strange thing to say, but I'm a conscious whenever anybody speaks from the front, what people hear is not necessarily what the speaker thinks they're saying. Very frequently over the years after I've finished a service, somebody at the door has said to me, when you said so and so and so and so and so and so, that really spoke to me. And I'm standing there thinking, I don't think I said that. <laughs> but of course, that's the astonishing thing about what happens in this kind of context. What happens in this kind of context is that God takes what is going on and speaks to the human heart, sometimes directly through the words of what be is being said, but sometimes through what is being said, triggering other thoughts in the mind of the person who's listening. So there are, whenever, whenever the word of God is unfolded, there are, there are two aspects to it. One is the person who's seeking to do the unfolding, and the other is the person who's hearing. And there's a responsibility on the hearer to hear, to listen. A responsibility we all have to seek to understand what God would say to us this morning. I want to read from uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. For those of you who uh, haven't been here the last few weeks, we're in the process of a series of sermons on one, th uh, sorry, 2 Thessalonians, not 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We've been looking at this book, and I get to speak on chapter 3 in the first five verses, which read like this. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you. And pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil people, for not everyone has faith. But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the things we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. When I was uh, asked to speak on this, I, I read it a few times and thought, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. At first glance, it's kind of a, a bit of an ordinary passage of Scripture, especially when we've been in the heady heights of the second coming and the man of lawlessness being revealed and all that kind of stuff. And people are going, oh, oh, oh. And it's like this is a, a pastoral gem that's tucked away in, in the context of, of this letter Paul is writing to the church at, at Thessalonica. The letter, as you should now by, uh, by now know, was the second letter that Paul wrote to this church. 
written about the year AD 51, maybe 52, probably while he was in Corinth, written to this church which is situated what is in modern-day Greece. And part of the reason for Paul writing this was to remind them, uh, well, the first letter, rather, he wrote to remind them that Jesus was coming back. And the second letter he wrote to tell them not quite yet, uh, probably, because this letter had been received purporting to be from Paul saying, the Lord's already come, that great day has come, and you've kind of missed the boat, as it were. And he's trying to correct all these problems. Sometimes we forget, though, that when, when the letter writers, Paul in particular, writes, and we read it from the New Testament, he is writing to a group of people. He didn't sit there thinking, I am writing scripture. And in 2018 in Gosforth, some people will gather together and read my words. He had no idea about that. God knew about that, he didn't. He was writing words to a bunch of people he knew, to a bunch of people he'd invested time with, he cared about. If you read the first letter, again and again, he talks about his, his care for them, his real desire that they're going on and how re relieved he is when Timothy comes back to him and gives him the report, yes, this, this church you planted in this town, it's going on, it's going from strength to strength. And you can sense within him this kind of, oh, this, is, this is good, this is good. Over the years, I've had the privilege of, of ministering in a number of churches. And almost without fail, every Sunday, whatever church I've been in, in my mind, I've reflected on the, on the others. Uh, and this morning, in, in different parts of this country, there are congregations that are, I, I used to be part of. And I still feel emotionally uh, a strong bond with them. When I had my retirement, uh, farewell, Thanksgiving service, Thanksgiving for my retirement, yes. Um, it was great that a number of people came from those churches. And one, uh, I was particularly moved that when I was a young Baptist minister with long hair in 1982, um, went to this, I went to this church. And from that church, some who were still there and others who had been there and gone to other churches, there must have been, when they, they gathered together for a photograph, group photograph, about 40 people who'd come. And it touched my heart and others from other churches, and I still feel an incredible bond with those people. Now, as Paul is writing this letter, he's writing to people he feels a, a bond with. He cares about them. He's not just giving some kind of theological structure saying, well, if you want to live as a Christian, you should do this, and you should do that, and you should do that. You know, you got the point. He's almost, you can almost feel the aching of his heart saying, please listen. Please listen. Please, please get this right because you matter to me. Within these uh, pastoral issues, uh, I, I just want to pick out three things that come directly uh, from the passage. On Thursday morning, uh, we were going to drive down to South End. Uh, drove back last night, having seen uh, Betty's mother and my parents and that sort of thing. But before I went, I, I had to go to the walk-in centre. NHS walk-in centre in Biker to have my free aneurysm check because people around the age of 65 get one. Well, men do anyway. Uh, 
parking was difficult, so in the end I left Betty with the car and she went off to five. Rush hour was difficult as well, so I had about a five minute window from getting out to find the front door, which was around the back. So I ran around the front, to the front door and, and I, I leapt up to the second floor up the stairs and got there for my free aneurysm check going, <laughs> am I in the right place? And my appointment was the first one and I only had a few minutes to, to realize uh, that I was suddenly in a room full of 65-year-old men. It's interesting that, isn't it? When you're surrounded by your contemporaries. Two things occurred to me and struck Betty as well when she eventually managed to catch up and get there. Actually, I was in and out very quickly. Two things struck me. One is I was by far the greyest uh, of, of those 65-year-old men. The second is I was by far the fittest and nimblest of those 65-year-old men. So, I, you know, I was called in, I was up to, I watched some of the, <coughs> and all that sort of stuff, and uh, thinking, oh, interesting, interesting. Now, under the surface, you never know what's going on, do you? So as I was laid on this bench, and they put this gungy stuff on there, and rubbed this ultrasound thing up and down to check for my aneurysm, I thought, I wonder if I've got one. Because you don't know, do you? Until it's too late. Or nearly. Um, so, mm, I think, I wonder, I wonder. Because I'd been given strict instructions, if it's a small aneurysm, we'll call you back in a year. If it's a middle-sized aneurysm, we'll call you back in six months. And if it's a big aneurysm, we'll report you straight to your doctors. And if it's huge, you're not going home. All right, that was basically, and if we do find one, you need to declare it on your, uh, your car insurance. <laughs> okay, and, and if it's middle size or bigger, you probably have to stop driving. Okay, I just came for a free check, um, really, you know. Uh, oh, that, that was the other thing I forgot to mention. Uh, I hope you're not put off, sir, when you go into the room, because there'll be a lot of people in there, because we've got students in. There are actually four of them. One rubbing this thing up and down my chest, and the other going, mm. no sign of an aneurysm. You don't need to go back again, come back again. Thinking, that's great. That's great. But I wouldn't have known had we not checked. Now, the thing about discipleship, the thing about walking with Jesus is simply this. It is very easy to get into a way of living, into a, 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 a kind of, of following Jesus which we think is okay and we think works, but is a long way out of kilter with what the Bible requires of, an, uh, requires of us and asks of us. We hear preachers pray, uh, preach and say, well, you know, or, not Andy, I have to say, but I've heard some, all you really need to do is, is know that God loves you and trust in his grace. And, and after that, well, you know, you're going to make lots of mistakes, so don't worry about it. Just trust in his grace and you'll be all right. Now, there's some truth in that. The problem is it negates the reason why nearly all these letters were written. And these letters were written that we might walk in faith and we might walk in holiness and we might walk in truth. That we might be the real deal as disciples and not those who, who hang on by our fingertips. And the first thing that comes out of this passage is simply this. Pray. 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 Here's a specific example Paul gives. Pray for us, he says that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly 
and be honored just as it was with you. And I've been, I, in my short time here, I've been down this road before. How's your prayer life? How is it? Sobering, isn't it, when, when you read quotes like this. Oswald Chambers. Beware of placing the emphasis on what prayer costs us. It costs God everything to make it possible for us to pray. E.M. Bounds. Nothing, whatever, can atone for the neglect of praying. Samuel Chadwick. Hurry is the death of prayer. You feel guilty yet? This is part of our problem, you see. We, we do not understand that the primary tool God gives us to, work, to, to live within the reality of the kingdom is prayer. When we pray, either as individuals in our homes or in groups of people, at that moment there is nothing more important in the whole world that is happening. Because there is nothing more important in the whole world than people speaking with the God who changes circumstances and changes lives. And yet we have, have fallen for this sort of devil's trap of thinking, yeah, I, I need to pray, I've done my 10 minutes, good, that's a box ticked. Or I've been to the prayer meeting and I've gone through the list, good, that's a box ticked. But when the New Testament talks about prayer, it talks about something very different to that. It talks about seeking God for his own sake and then on behalf of others. Really seeking God. Acknowledging that our lives here are secondary to his in importance. That he is what life is about. We are not. During the early communion uh, service, I had this strong uh, sense of, of the word anchor. And it suddenly got to me that what we were doing is we were breaking bread and sharing wine and remembering the death of Jesus Christ. We were remembering that, that the anchorage point of our faith, in fact, more than that, the anchorage point of what makes sense of life, because the Bible tells us that Jesus is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. It is through the cross of Jesus that eternity and time are anchored together and in which we put our roots. And how do we access those things? How do we get into the deep things of, of the benefits of what Jesus has done? We do it through prayer. As we spend time with God. Now, my purpose is not to make you all feel guilty. I, I, I wish my prayer life was better than it was. All I can claim is it's better than it used to be. I was with my, my mother yesterday. She's She'll be 96 next month, and my father as well. And uh, she still has all the photographs of all the family on the unit. Yeah, and every day, every day, she always has done, as long as I can remember, and her mother before her, she prays and she prays and she prays for the family. If you want to ask uh, in human terms a reason why my brother and I are serving the Lord as we are, and our children are serving the Lord, it's because my mother prays. 
and her mother before her. Now, there are other reasons, I understand that. There are other factors involved. But we, we must not, under any circumstances, lose our grip on the centrality of, of this key issue of the Christian life. It's the privilege of our lives to be able to address the, the creator of the universe, to spend time in his presence without fear because of what Jesus has done and share with him the concerns of our hearts and our burdens and our fears and our dreams and our hopes and hear him speak back to us by his Holy Spirit. I went to, uh, went to my first home group since I'd been here the other, the other week and uh, found myself saying something, I thought, oh, I wonder where that came from. But as I reflected on it, I realized it was right. <laughs> Probably the majority of Christians would rather talk about God than experience him. Because talking about God doesn't cost. You just need to learn the language. Experiencing God means humbling ourselves before him and saying, Lord, would you, would you fill me again with your Holy Spirit? Would you come close? Would you meet me in this point of my need? We need to pray. And, and Paul's two practical examples here are very straightforward. Pray that the gospel would spread and be honored. Do you do that? Do you pray that the gospel would spread? Do you pray for evangelists? Do you pray for one another? in your workplace, in the school playground, in all the opportunities of, of, of being with people that we all have, do you pray? Lord, would, would you unleash opportunities for the gospel this week? Would you give people words to say that they don't even know they're going to say until they say them? That just speak and drop, drop these, these uh, droplets of, of truth, the seed of the kingdom into people's lives. Pray that the gospel may increase and pray for God's servants, that they might be delivered from wicked people. Uh, and yes, there are some. There are some. There are plenty of people out there whose course is set on destroying the church of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm, I'm not sort of, we used to call it the old days, reds under the bed syndrome. I'm not talking about that. I'm just saying that, just listen. There is a whole agenda out there in our political world which is designed to destroy the church of Jesus Christ, to remove it from society totally. Uh, it's expressed through, again through the leader of Ofsted. I'm not suggesting he's a wicked person, but what she said is nonsense. Uh, in criticizing the Christian Institute uh, for their interference. And the point was that the Christian Institute do not understand the difference between uh, liberalism and conservatism that you can be a conservative Christian but a liberal politician, and all that sort of stuff, she was making that point. To which they have responded, I think, brilliantly, the leader of Ofsted doesn't understand the difference between liberalism and secularism. And there is the problem. We have a secularly driven society which is seeking to remove God at best to the fringes. Now, do we know that? Do we recognize that? Do we see it when we read our papers, when we listen to the news? Are you aware of these things? If you are, are you praying about them? Are you praying for God to raise up voices who will turn the tide and say, just hang on a minute here. God is still on the throne. You will still be accountable to him when you reach the end of your days. People who will unashamedly but graciously hold their ground. Do you pray about those things? Or are you one of those Christians who thinks and says, oh, this is all a bit too difficult for me to understand, so I just let others get on with that and I do the simple thing. 
you do not have to understand something to pray about it. You really don't. And God's servants all over the world and all over this land need, need our prayers. And then I'll just do my plug before we go on to the second point. Again, I've said this before here a little while ago. If you haven't watched the film War Room, which has got nothing to do with war, by the way. If you haven't watched the film War Room, which was a box office, second biggest grossing film in America a couple of years ago, but never released over here because it was too Christian, that says something about our society, doesn't it? If you haven't watched it, watch it. It's mind-blowing. It's about prayer. Do a little Google search, for those of you who are into Google. Do a little Google search sometime for Jim Cimbala, C-Y-M-B-A-L-A. He's the, uh, the minister at Brooklyn Tabernacle. Okay. Jim Cimbala, House of Prayer. And it's a sermon he preached a lot of years ago. Listen to it. It'll take you about 55 minutes of your time. And it will transform your understanding of the centrality of prayer. Without prayer, the church will die. Not die, die, because God won't let it. But in terms of its effectiveness, in terms of our expression of it, God will raise up others who will pray. If we won't do it, he will raise up those who will. Second thing from the passage. God is faithful. Oh, almost getting excited there. Some years ago, I won't tell you the, who the person was, it wouldn't be fair, but some years ago, I was at a wedding at the reception, and a young lady who uh, I know very well, who'd been through some tough times of family members not being what they should be and being disillusioned by many things, said to me, she had had a few drinks at the time, I hasten to add, <laughs> but in a kind of uh, loquacious, said, you're still here, aren't you? still here. And I know what she was saying. She was saying, you haven't changed. You're not going to go away, are you? I, I was deeply moved by that and, and said, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. God is faithful. He doesn't change. He's not going anywhere. If the whole world chose to disbelieve in God, it wouldn't make a scrap of difference to his existence. Yeah? If the whole world decided to turn their back on the Almighty, there'd still be a day of judgment. God is faithful. He does and will keep his promises. He will sustain those who trust him. He will receive us at the end of our days to himself if our trust is in him. He will do these things. He will never, ever leave us or forsake us whatever is going on in our lives. However much you might at some stage in your life feel that God has left you. You might be an emotional wreck. Your little world may have tumbled down because all the things you depended on may have gone and God has not left you no matter how you feel. Uh, read the book of Job again to get the idea of what that's about. He is faithful. He doesn't, he doesn't exist in the shadows. He is what he says he is. He is true to his word. He does what he says he will do. He will strengthen and he will protect. And because God is faithful, one of the things he prizes in those who would follow him more than anything else is that we would be faithful. Yeah. 
the end of my days, I have a, a longing to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. I suspect I might hear some other words as well which aren't quite as much as I'd like, but I believe and trust that in that, they'll, within those words, there'll be something of that, well done, good and faithful servant. It's what I long to hear because there is nothing, nothing in the whole world that has anything to offer besides those words, that God would be pleased with us. He looks to us to be faithful to him. He looks to us to be faithful to one another. And he looks to us to be faithful to the gospel, the good news of Jesus. When others compromise, he looks to us to stay true. When some turn away, he looks to us to keep going with him. I may have told you before about my friend when I was a teenager who was in the Salvation Army with me, who simply one day said to me, I've had enough, I'm not coming anymore. I don't want to be part of this. Desperate. Broke my heart, actually. Still pray for him. His name's Robert Brown. I have no idea what happened to him. I haven't seen him. Well, clapped eyes at him once since that day. Still pray for him. Desperate. You know? But what choice do you then make? My friends are going. They're, they're turning the back. Oh, nobody comes to church anymore. Church isn't cool anymore. All that kind of garbage which society throws at us. If you want to go where it's cool to be, just have a look at it. And do you really want to be there? Do you really want to be part of that? When some would withhold forgiveness from Christian brothers and sisters, he looks to us to model a better way and to demonstrate forgiveness. When some people are cowed into not talking about Jesus anymore, he looks to us to keep on witnessing and keep on talking about him, whatever it costs. When we are pressured into abandoning the clear moral teaching of Scripture, he looks to us to lovingly hold firm. And when it's just plain hard to live as a believer and be faithful in our dealings with others, he looks to us to press on to be disciples of Jesus Christ. You see, it's the long haul. It's the long haul. I was young once. Some people you might, who knew me then probably wouldn't tell you that wasn't true. Uh, uh, one lady in one of my churches used to say, you were born old, Stuart. Um, I know what she meant by that. But I was young once. And I used to listen to old guys come and speak at the front, you know, retired Salvation Army officers and the like. And there was a part of me always kind of had that sort of, even though I, I wasn't naturally cynical, I used to have this bent of thinking, well, yeah, bless them, you know, bless them, they're, they're old now, they're a little bit out of touch with where real things are. I'm sure they've got something nice to say, but of course it's not, you know. Now I'm old. I'm one of those people that people look at and think, well, you know, bless him, he's a little bit out of touch and uh, has these old-fashioned ideas. I've discovered something. They were right. I've discovered that it's the long haul that matters, not the short haul. Oh, there, there are encounters with Jesus to be had. Wonderful encounters to be had. Hallelujah. Lord, more, 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 more. But to the end of the day, you, you can be blessed out of your socks for 10 years of your life, and then you can spend the last 10 years of your life miles away from God. What, 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 
What difference does it make? The long haul. Every day, one step after another, one step after another, walking in the way of Jesus Christ. God is faithful. So be faithful. So be faithful. And then there's that fantastic phrase at the end here, the end of this little passage, where Paul says, May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. I scratched my head a long time about that, thinking, you know, what, what's Paul getting at here? Uh, that God would direct our hearts. Okay, if, if we want that to happen, we need to cooperate with him in that. What's, what's he talking about when he's talking about heart here? Well, he's using a, a word which is bigger than emotions. He's, he's saying, well, may God direct and you cooperate. Everything you've got, your emotions, your mental focus, everything into God's love and Christ's perseverance. And then a, a, a penny began to drop, and I, I realized that actually, basically, that's it. Why are we Christians? Because of God's love. God loved the world so much, he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not per perish, but receive everlasting life. This is love, not that we love God, but that he lived, uh, loved us. Yeah? God loves you. God really loves you. He doesn't love you as a job lot. You know, he doesn't think, Regent Chapel, oh, I love Regent Chapel, and because you're in it, I better love you too. You know, that's not the way God operates. He loves you. He's, he's known you from the moment you were conceived. And the reality of your conception was part of his purpose. However that happened. He longs in his heart for you to walk with him. The Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish. So the fact that people do isn't because God wants it to be. He knows how many hairs there are on your head. Isn't that fantastic? I, I, heard the <laughs> I heard the figure the other day uh, of, of the average number of hairs on a head. Uh, I've forgotten what it was, but it was an awful lot. And as I often say, you know, in some cases, God has to have a subtractor as well as a, a, an addy. You know, but he knows intimately every detail of your life, and he loves you so much that he gave his son, Jesus Christ, to leave the glory of heaven to leave the splendor of his relationship with his father in the immediacy of that and to become a human being with all the vulnerability of that, all because he wanted to rescue you and me that he might have you and me with him throughout eternity. And this son of God, this God become a human being, dies on our behalf, takes the guilt of my sin and your sin and he pays the penalty required by the law as he hangs and bleeds and dies in agony on the cross out of love for you. Absolute love. And then he rises from the dead, breaks even the power of death so that all who put their trust in him and recognize they have no hope in themselves, all who turn from their own way, put their trust in him, receive the benefit of his death, total forgiveness because the price has already been paid. 
and the benefit of his resurrection, new life, the life of God's spirit living within us, and we need no longer fear what physical death has in store for us. Really? I need to shout this a bit louder. Christian, if you claim to be one, there is not the slightest reason for you to fear what death has in store for you. Oh yeah, the means of death might not be nice. You know, some people just go, my neighbor's dog just went kapump uh, the other day, and uh, very old dog, it's very sad and all that sort of stuff, but good way to go, tapump, yeah? yeah? Others, it's not so nice. Understand all that. But death itself, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you either believe this or you don't, by the way, death itself is simply a stepping stone into his presence. And I, for one, am looking forward to that day incredibly. You know? Really. Really, let's, let's get our theology right, folks. Jesus did all this out of love for us so that the greatest fear of all that we have, which is death itself, is taken from us. So Paul shouts, death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? It isn't there. Paul wants us to understand all this and he wants us to tell others about this. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul tells us that it's the love of Christ that compels us with the message we have. And it's not just saying the fact of his love, it's our experience of his love which compels us. That Jesus would love me is astonishing. And therefore, he must love you too. And I want to tell you that. That's the, that's the idea behind this. We need to immerse ourselves in the reality and the experience and the practice of God's love. When you wake up in the morning, how do you feel? You know, besides the aches and pains and all that. You know, when you wake up in the morning, spiritually, how do you feel? The first thing you should tell yourself every morning when you wake up is, I am loved by the creator of the universe. Really. Really. He knows you by name. You don't all look convinced. You see, Jesus entered this world for the long haul, teaching, modeling, dying, rising, one day returning, becoming a human being and staying a human being for us because the Jesus who went back to glory is human. He didn't leave that behind. It's astonishing. And it is his perseverance, his perseverance, the love and perseverance of Jesus, his perseverance that sees us through and calls us to live and to persevere ourselves. There's an old Christian doctrine that used to be referred to as the perseverance of the saints. And I remember when I was very little, my mother saying it really should be called the perseverance of the Savior. And that's right. Because of his perseverance, we can persevere. Because of his love, we can rest in that love and love ourselves with everything we have. There are moments of blissful encounter, don't get me wrong, moments of blissful encounter with God on the journey that we should, we should be experiencing more and more. God isn't a God who withholds himself from us, except for a specific purpose, for a reason. God is a God who presses down his blessings over and over again. There are experiences of him to be had, and I'd encourage you to, to, to search for those experiences, not for the experience themselves, but to know God. Yeah? But in the end, to be a Christian is dogged perseverance. 
because you don't always have those great experiences. There are days when you wake up and your rheumatism's bad and your head hurts. There are days when the phone rings and you hear stuff you don't want to hear. And it tears your heart out. You know? Keep on. Keep on. Persevere. 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 Hebrews 12 tells us to throw off every hindrance. Every hindrance. And run with perseverance the race which has been set for us. Just get rid of the stuff and focus. 1 Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy 1.12 says, If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot disown himself. Health, family, work issues, whatever. Stay faithful. He is able and he never leaves us no matter how hard it gets. So pray. God is faithful, so be faithful and direct your hearts, whole of who you are, into the love of God and the perseverance of Christ. Pastoral gem. And if I hadn't been asked to preach on it, I'd probably never have realized. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you know us, uh, you understand us through and through. With all our oddities, with all our funny ways, with all our fears. Thank you that you love us. And thank you that that love is so thorough and so deep. And you have provided totally for our salvation. And thank you that you are faithful in all that you do. Lord, would you accept our hearts now? Would you accept our response now to you? Lord, maybe someone here this morning has never put their trust in you. Would you accept that first step of faith now? And those of us who do know you, would you accept our renewed trust that you would sustain us? through the whole of life. In Jesus' name, amen.